Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives on the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. They defended the very institutions and principles that define the United States. Since the attack on our capital, the Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment, and our investigation of other individuals continues. Hey, everybody. Welcome into a special edition of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. 
taking the break from having a drink with my wife and this man gets another indictment like i'm just trying to live my life and this man's blowing up my summer i'm nick saveri man just get to the intro already listen we've got a special episode of course uh minutes hours after we recorded our last episode with nima romani breaking down the documents case and everything that happened with respect to those charges last week the hunter biden plea deal we thought we had an episode all ready to go pushed it out the door and then all of a sudden at around 5 p.m eastern time uh on august 1st special counsel jack smith releases an indictment for charges conspiracy to defraud the united states conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against rights against the former president donald john trump and now we need somebody to help us break this down. So joining us is former federal prosecutor and TV contributor. You can catch this man everywhere. I was telling him off air. I just saw him on CNN the other day with Abby Phillips. This guy does a great job. Joseph Moreno. Joseph, welcome into the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Mike, Nick, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. So Joseph, you know, I, I reached out to you, I want to say about a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about, you know, the target letter that former president got. He mentions it on Truth Social. So I reached out to you. I said, hey, you know, I would love to have you on, explain some of this and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we just kept in touch because we kind of were waiting for this to happen. Then the news breaks, like I said, just a few hours ago before we started recording this podcast. And can you kind of take us inside the indictment and the four overall charges that I just mentioned there? Take us inside a little bit of what these charges laid out by the special counsel. Sure, Mike. So you know, just when you thought you were rid of us lawyers, right, there's more to talk about in the in the legal community. But no, it's interesting times, right? So so to your point, starting with the, the target letter news from a couple of weeks ago, what a target letter means, right, is that a, a recipient in the eyes of the prosecutor, in this case, it's federal, so it's the Justice Department, uh, in the eyes of the Justice Department, they believe that you should be charged with something. And they're giving you an opportunity to show up before the grand jury uh, without your lawyer. Your lawyer sits outside and, and you, as the target, get to answer the prosecutor's questions. Um, sometimes grand jurors even ask their own questions. Now, uh, Trump did get the letter, he told us. He did not take them up on their offer to appear. Um, that's actually some good legal advice I assume he took because no lawyer would tell their client to ever appear before a grand jury, it's only downside. You're not going to talk them out of charging you. Um, but at that point, that's a pretty good indicator that charges are coming. So I, I believe uh, Trump was issued the target letter on a Sunday. I think he was given until Thursday to appear. That Thursday came and went. Uh, and so not surprisingly, it's been just a few days or a week or so, and now we have an indictment, which means that, um, the, grand, the, the prosecutors presented their theory to a grand jury, and that grand jury voted a majority to, to bring certain charges. There may have been other charges that prosecutors considered, proposed, that, that may or may not have been voted on, but we don't really know because it's all very, very secret. So um, we have had time, though, to, to kind of guess what these charges regarding January 6th might look like. So now that we've actually seen the indictment in the last few hours, I've been able to speed weed the 45 pages. Um, the first question was always whether or not Trump would be charged with anything to do directly with the violence of January 6th. Because I think when, when many people think of 
that episode, they think of the spectacular violence that occurred that afternoon. And so what was happening, right? That was the ceremony where Vice President Mike Pence was to present the findings of the various states um, on a state-by-state basis, and the Congress would vote on them. It's largely ceremonial, right? Although we'll get into what Trump kind of had a different theory about what that was going to happen at that ceremony. Um, But of course, as we know, there was a speech that Trump gave, and then there were thousands of people that marched on the Congress, and and they, on the Capitol building, just a few miles from where I'm sitting here in in Washington, uh, the violence, some deaths, some injuries, and a pretty disgraceful day for, for I think, all of us Americans. So um, the question was, though, was Trump charged with anything directly relating to the violence? And so people were wondering if he would be charged with something like insurrection or seditious conspiracy or incitement. And he wasn't. I think the reason for that is that charges like that would have had to prove that Trump specifically intended for the violence to occur. Now, we all may have our theories about what Trump did or did not intend, but I always question that the government had that evidence. And I think Trump would point to one one statement he made in his speech where he said, let's all march peacefully on the Capitol. And I think he would point to that and say, look, I didn't mean for it to get violent. I meant for it to be a peaceful march. And if it got violent, that was their choice and it wasn't my fault. So, So the charges did not go in that direction. They talk about what happened, but they don't charge Trump directly. What they do charge him with is four accounts um, of various flavors of fraud uh, and and fraud and and obstruction of a congressional proceeding. So the fraud is that Trump purportedly knew he lost the election, but for spent weeks and months taking making speeches, making statements, taking actions, to try to reverse the results of the election. So he tried to defraud Congress and the American people as to the rightful outcome of the 2020 election. Um, Then there's the obstruction, which relates to that January 6th ceremony, where Trump tried to convince Mike Pence that he could alter the results by simply uh, recounting or selecting which electoral votes to count from which states and so and and selecting which votes not to count. So on the fraud charges, so first off, I think it's it's an important distinction to make um, about whether you think Trump should, is, is morally, ethically culpable, politically culpable for what happened between election day 2020 and January 6th versus whether he's legally culpable. I have no problem, and I think I think many people would, would, would agree that Trump bears a heck of a lot of culpability for what happened there. He, 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 I believe he behaved disgracefully. I think his, his, his behavior was absurd, um, and it was so such an embarrassment nationally of what happened that day. But it's not the same it's not the same as saying that there are clean legal theories and legal charges that apply to what Trump did. And I think, what we saw today in the indictment is probably the best the prosecutors had in applying the laws on the books to what Trump did, but I think it's going to be a challenging case to prosecute, and I'll tell you why. Um, so fraud 
is traditionally considered to be financial pro or property fraud. So if you are a government contractor and you cheat the government in some kind of bidding fraud, uh, or, you, or you steal from the government and you've taken money from the taxpayers, that's traditional fraud. Prosecutors over the decades have stretched that to have different kinds of, of meanings. Um, and here, what they're saying is Trump didn't steal money from the government. He didn't defraud the government out of property. He tried to defraud the government out of the proper election results. The problem with that is that courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, have not been really receptive when prosecutors stretch the use of fraud statutes beyond financial fraud. And the Supreme Court specifically has held just a few months ago, um, the, it's, the Supreme Court rejected and kicked out the convictions of two underlings of former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who had been uh, taken up on, on non-financial fraud charges, and the Supreme Court threw them out. So I, I think it could be interesting to see how Jack Smith argues that this fraud that Donald Trump is charged with should, should, should apply when the, when the courts have not liked those kinds of charges. We'll see. The other thing, um, which I think has been noted on already in the last few hours by people, is that this whole case is really contingent on proving that Donald Trump knew that he lost the 2020 election. And if you look at the indictment, and I do recommend people read it, uh, at least the first few pages. And it says right there on the bottom of the first page that Donald Trump knew that he lost. That's really important, though, because if, you need, if you're going to charge someone and convict someone of fraud, you have to prove that they knew what they do, what were doing was fraudulent, was deceitful, right? Otherwise, it's not fraud. So I think what we'll see is prosecutors will, will say, look, there's a long line of people that told Donald Trump he had lost the election, including his attorney general, Bill Barr, his senior cabinet members, most of his lawyers, uh, even his, his kids, I think. But the problem is the, the standard is not what a reasonable, rational person would have thought under the circumstances. It's what the defendant, Donald Trump, thought there and at the time. So prosecutors will have to show evidence that Donald Trump knew that he lost and that all of his efforts, whether through pressure on state electors or pressure on members of Congress or statements to the American people or tweets or all the things that he said about the election being bogus, that he really believed that. So I think you're gonna see a real battle royale if this goes to trial on that point because that goes to whether or not he had the intent to commit these crimes. Um, so either he knew he lost and he was part, and he, and he launched this conspiracy to defraud the American public by trying to change the election, or he was a crazy guy who really believed what some of his followers told him and believed that he lost, and he was trying to fix what he thought was a, a an incorrect result. To that, to that end, one of the things that's also been revealed, Joseph, a little while ago are, are some of the names of some of the co-conspirators. For our listeners, 
you know, when we talk about co-conspirators, are these folks who are also a part of these proceedings in terms of people who are part of the trial or like what what role do they play? And and by revealing their names, what aside from you know, sort of the newsworthiness of it, um, what does that do in terms of either public perception or just as a society sort of preparing for what's to come um, from a legal standpoint? Well, so a conspiracy requires right two or more people, right? So anytime you say conspiracy, it requires not just one person. So in the in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, Trump has two co-defendants, right? He's got his 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 valet, and I think this this property manager now that was added last week. And so the allegations are that with respect to hiding, moving boxes, and possibly trying to erase surveillance video that these other two co-defendants were part of this conspiracy to obstruct the investigation, to prevent the FBI from learning to the extent that there were documents down in Florida. In this, in the January 6th case, Trump is the only defendant currently, and there is a conspiracy, and there are unindicted co-conspirators that are, that, are, that are identified with anonymized names in the in the indictment. So Nick, to your point there, it talks about co-conspirator number one, number two, and so on. And if you look at it, you can kind of figure out that they're, they're attorneys, it says that. You can kind of figure out who they are, right? I mean, it's probably Rudy Giuliani, it's probably Sidley Powell, it's probably John Eastman, who had the, the, the kind of wacky legal theory about how Vice President Pence could single-handedly change the election results. Um, it's unlikely they will be charged because I think if they were, they would have been charged by now. Um, part of that might be the, because of the fact that they're lawyers and it is difficult to charge us lawyers. We, we tend to get a lot of deference um, because there are protections that allow us to provide legal advice to our clients um, and where that legal advice veers into um allegations that we're not we're going beyond giving good legal advice and now we're giving criminal advice advice on how to evade the law or break the law well then that's that threshold that and sometimes hard to prove that but i think that's what they're getting at here was that um this wasn't good legal advice trump was getting that was that would be protected this was you know, sort of nonsense that that trump was knew or should have known was nonsense, but relied on it anyway, because he was kind of using the cover of it being advice from lawyers um, as an excuse to do it. You know, Joseph, uh, we just had a former attorney on literally the last episode. Uh, a bunch of people, I'm watching television over my, my uh, right shoulder here, I'm looking that way, and seeing a bunch of folks that have been on this program talking about the different defense strategies of the former president in all of these cases, in all of these cases, excuse me, across the different states. So I wanted to kind of ask you, you know, I told you off air, I minored in criminal justice. I did want to be an attorney. Uh, I went into public speaking instead. So uh, I would love to learn a little bit more about, because you were talking about it when you were answering the first question about what we need to prove in this case, right? Like what Jack Smith is going to actually have to try to prove in this case. So I would love for you to take us inside. If you were trying this case from the prosecution lens, what are some things that you're hammering home from an evidentiary standpoint to the jury? And then also from the defense standpoint, you're defending the former president right now. You get 
this indictment. You get the list of these four charges. What are you looking at and saying, we can attack this? There's a weakness in this. There's no direct evidence. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence in terms of, hey, I said this, but I didn't mean that. It can be interpreted in a multitude of ways. And I hear a lot of political podcasts out there not really pointing to that. And again, criminal justice minor. So you heard a little bit of that there, Joseph. I know you're smiling. Um, so what do you, how would you defend the former president with these, with respect to these charges? And how would you also prosecute the former president? So, Mike, I think, so this is what they refer to sometimes as a speaking indictment because it gives a lot of facts or a lot of, it tells us a narrative, it tells a story. It's got a timeline, talks about it from election day, that the very next day, I think it says, or shortly after Donald Trump launched his scheme. And, he then, this is, and then it talks about how he perpetuated this scheme over the, the following months. And it gives a lot of facts. And I think from looking at this, I don't think a lot of these facts are going to be disputed. So when it says he called election officials in, in Georgia and he pressured, he made, he made statements publicly about shenanigans in Pennsylvania, I don't think there's much doubt that he did these things. And I don't think he's going to try to say he didn't do these things. A lot of these were done in public, right, and, or on social media. So we know they happened. So I think what it's really going to come down to uh, is the, his is again his state of mind, what they call the mens rea, right? Did he have the intent to uh, commit a crime by saying, did he know he was lying? Did he know he was committing some kind of deceit? And again, that goes back to, did he know that he lost the election? And did he know that these statements he were making, he was making about voting irregularities in Philadelphia or in Arizona or in Georgia were, were, were completely unfounded. And so if I were on the prosecution side, I would do what Liz Cheney did during the January 6th commission. And like I said, I would just bring up witness after witness after witness who said, look, I sat down with Donald Trump and I told him, you know, Mr. President, there's, you know, you lost. We're not finding these these theories that people are, you know, kind of that are bubbling up are not panning out. Um, I mean, we know that Bill Barr, the attorney general, spent something like six weeks between early November and early December. So the month after the election, running down many different theories about voting irregularities. And each one, he came back empty handed and he presented that to Donald Trump, who didn't take it very well, apparently. So I would I would call Bill Barr. I would call um, uh, the other attorneys that we believe gave Donald Trump that, that have said publicly they told Donald Trump that they weren't finding any evidence of voting fraud and that it appears he lost. So I would hammer that. I would hammer that with witness after witness, and I would bring credible people who had prominent titles who present well at trial, and uh, and that's how I would try to prove that. Of course, I would also look for any kinds of admissions that Donald Trump may have made. And we don't know the extent of what the prosecution's office has, right, in terms of text messages or voicemails or emails or whatever. If they have something that shows Donald Trump admitting he knows he lost, that would be even better, right? That would be really, really real gold. On the flip side, on the defense side, I would say, you know, you can, you can bring in 100 people saying that, you know, testifying as to what they told my client. But the fact is my client believed then that he won. He believes now that he won. And he believes that everything he did 
to reverse the election results were justified because he was trying to, to correct a grievous error in that uh, the election was stolen from him and he was taking steps to fix that, get basically to get it back. And I think that's going to be the battle. And it's going to come down to who has the better evidence and who does the jury believe? Joseph, something that also comes up too is that, um, you know, when we think of this now marks the third indictment of the former president, fourth one soon to be coming from the state of Georgia. If you're on the Trump legal team, which of these, let's just focus on the three that we know are, are in place now. Which of the three seems to carry the most water and the most likely to produce, if I'm going to use a boxing term here, that is most likely to land a blow against the former president? So I would say um, in ranking, in ranking the, uh, the three that we know about, I would say the, the, most, the most damaging as of right now is the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Um, it, it, I think Trump's going to have a hard time defending himself on that one. It, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, there's, again, there's no factual question that the boxes of classified documents were in Florida. No one's really questioning that. They were there. The FBI has now seized them and they're back in the hands of the government. Uh, and then with last week's superseding indictment, it got worse because then they really, uh, the prosecutors really dug into uh, the steps that Donald Trump allegedly took to hide the fact that he had these documents. And so if you recall, the first 12 months or so after he left office, the National Archives was trying to get these back and they were asking politely after they realized he wasn't going to turn them over, they referred the case to the FBI, who then asked a little less politely, right, with, with a subpoena. And, and at that point, I, I think Donald Trump probably still could have come clean and said, you know what, Here, here's everything. I think I should be able to keep it. But you know what, out of, out, of, out of caution, I'm giving everything back to you. He didn't do that. What he did was he handed back something like a few dozen documents, but there were still 100 more that he was still sitting on down in Florida, but he had his attorney certify to the FBI that that was everything, that they've done a search of, of Mar-a-Lago, they've, they've identified everything that has a classified marking on it, and here it is, FBI, you've got, you've got everything. And the FBI had reason to believe that that wasn't true and that there was still a lot more back there. And then a few months later, when they actually raided the compound, sure enough, they found a few hundred more. So. Now Donald Trump's got a real problem, right? Because he he can't he can't argue as well that he thought either because of the Presidential Records Act or his power to declassify, he can't say that he thought he was allowed to keep these documents because if that's the case, then the next question would be, well, then why did you lie about having more of them? Right? Why didn't you either stand your ground and say, I'm keeping them because they're mine. Or be honest when you said I've turned them all over and actually turned them all over. So I, I think he's kind of dug himself into a hole now. And I think that's going to be a difficult case to defend. Um, you know, I, I'm sure he's going to come up with some creative arguments again about the, the Presidential Records Act and why he maybe believed he had declassified those documents and he was allowed to keep them. And the Presidential Records Act is not a criminal statute. 
uh, it's not been litigated in this fashion. So we've never had a you know former president try to do this. So you never know what could happen, but I would put him at a very uphill battle in that case. The New York case, the, the Stormy Daniels, Alvin Bragg case in New York, I, from what I understand of that case, I think that's actually pretty weak. I, I, I it's, it seems stale. Um, it seems like it's, it seems like the statute of limitations, which is the, the time expiration date after which you can't bring charges anymore. It seems like it's lapsed. So Alvin Bragg is going to have to come up with some creative argument about why those charges can still be brought. Um, I don't know. I'm not impressed with what I've seen up there in New York in that case. And then you have, of course, the case that that hit today. I put that somewhere in the middle at this moment, right? Again, not, we've just digested it for a few hours. We don't know a lot about it. Uh, I think it's serious, but yet it's going to require some creative arguments by the prosecution as to why these laws should apply to this conduct. And I'm skeptical. So that's the that's the order in which I would rank them at this point. I think Mar-a-Lago, most dangerous to Trump. June, January 6th, somewhere in the middle. And New York, the Stormy Daniels case, probably toward the least dangerous at the moment. Joseph, you did such a great job breaking this all down for us. But before we let you go, Nick and I are two gambling men here. We also have a wager on the podcast here about whether or not the former president of the United States will actually serve any time in a jail facility. Um, gun to your head, you just broke down all these cases, the the weakness versus the strengths of them. But inclination-wise, given the stature of this being the former president of the United States, do you think Donald John Trump will serve any jail time across these three cases and in addition to the Georgia one that is still pending? I'd say no. No, I'd say he's convicted um, either through either a, a guilty plea or he goes to trial and gets, and gets convicted. Um, I think he drags out appeals for years, uh, which and, and he won't serve jail time while an appeal is pending. At that point, he's in his early 80s and... Uh, I don't think he ultimately serves jail time. Uh, yeah. I, I just don't. That would, that would be my that would be my guess. You, you heard it there first. No rebuttal, Mr. Severi. So the cheeseburger gets to him before the prison does. Unfortunately, we have to go to the break, Mr. Severi. No, no rebuttal there. You can check out Joseph Moreno across any news outlet breaking down some of this legal stuff. Former federal prosecutor Joseph, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast with such short notice. Appreciate it. Continued success to you, sir. Please stay safe. Mike, Nick, my pleasure. It's great to be with you. 
Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. This episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by the good folks over at Razu. Razu is a brand new networking and collaborating service for artists in the music industry, providing music creators the collaborative tools to create and enhance songs virtually. Find out more about Razu at razu.io today. All right, our thank yous there to Joseph Moreno, former federal prosecutor. You can catch him. I've seen him on Fox News. I've seen him on CNN. You know, on ABC News, he does a great job breaking down some of this. I feel like a lot of the times, Nick, as we wrap here, um, our questions are very similar to what we've asked other lawyers, but there's different caveats to each of them. Because if you've noticed, you know, the cases have now more information has started to come out. We saw a superseding um, in terms of the documents case, a superseding indictment, which meant another person would be charged. More stuff was found, like Joseph just broke down there. And so now our questions are starting to pivot, right? It's like, first it was, which one keeps you up at night that he may get indicted on? Now it's, which one of these do you think he actually serves jail time for? And like, there is no, you know, Joseph just said it point blank. I don't think so, because the legal community, especially as you get older in age and with appeals, at his disposal and the ability to postpone trials for discovery. Now I'm using my legal hat here. Joseph will be impressed with this. Um, there's going to be a lot pushed into 24 and beyond. And we may never get any closure on some of this stuff. The former president is 79 years old. It's going to be 80 next year. So there's a lot, you know, uh, in terms of just father time <laughs> and then the court, the proverbial court clock clicking on this, uh, ticking on this, excuse me. So a lot there. What do you make of this broke at the beginning of the show? You heard special counsel Jack Smith's uh, press conference there as we came into the episode. What do you make of the indictment overall? What do you make of what Joseph kind of broke down there? What do you make of we can't even get an episode out the door with another attorney that we need to go get another attorney to break down some more charges? What do you make of it all? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's I mean, the last couple of months, it's just been one indictment after the other. So, I mean, we're up to three right now. You know, I, I appreciate you bringing up that point about the, you know, the reality is that every time we have someone on this show, shortly thereafter, something else happens. So our questions become evergreen because I, I thought about that when we were asking him about like, which, you know, which of these cases makes, if you're a member of the Trump team, makes you most nervous. And it is, you would think it's trite. It's like, well, how many times are you going to ask it? Well, how many times is this guy going to get in trouble? Right. Like it's going to keep coming up. So you, you kind of have to come back to it. Joseph brought up probably, I think, the biggest consideration in this case, if you remember the jury, is how do you convict someone who thinks they're right? And, you know, there's two quotes that came to me, one of which I text you and the other one I'll share now about sort of like having, you know, being resolute, even in the in the face of denial. And the first, of course, being it's not a lie if you believe it. Right. I mean, it's we it's it's a funny phrase, you know, it's something that we heard from George from on the Seinfeld. But over time, it's like, God damn, in a, in a courtroom, that is absolutely accurate. And then, of course, the second one is from Slim Charles, the wire. 
you know, it's a, if it's a lie, then you fight on that lie. In either case, you move forward. And it's very obvious that the former president, in the, in the face of so many people that came to him, still believed what he was doing was correct. And you know, Joseph has pointed to the fact that that may be enough for a jury to believe that he didn't commit a crime because he didn't think he did, which to me is lunacy because obviously something wrong has happened, but that's what they're going to find out. You know, the one part that we didn't get into is one of the charges talks about trying to, you know, basically prevent people from having their vote cast or having their votes heard. I think that might have been the fourth charge. And that I wish we had gotten into because that seems to be the other one that's going to come up too. But all of this comes under the heading of fraud. And I thought Joseph does an amazing job of just pointing to the fact that in a case of fraud where we're not talking about something financial, legal precedent tells us that so that's a lot hard to to find something find someone guilty of it's wild um i'm so thankful for joseph moreno and and the stable of lawyers that we have at our disposal nick from former federal prosecutors uh white collar criminal defense attorneys i mean everybody who's from the legal community has been on this program lexi rigdon sarah zari ellie honig uh, shout out to Elliot Williams, who's a CNN analyst, former federal prosecutor. He'll be coming on in the coming weeks. Nima Romani, uh, Joseph Moreno. We've had so many that have just come on here. Kim Whaley shared their legal knowledge and expertise. A lot of them have held these jobs that have worked in these departments to put these charges together to uphold the rule of law. Shout out to all of them for coming on this program and contributing to that. If you want to check out the video portion of our interview with Joseph, head to our YouTube channel. Type in Can We Please Talk Podcast and we should come right up. Hit the subscribe button for me as well. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to Good Pods are and all the people that listen there. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. Can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program, even when we drop special edition episodes of Breaking News. As always, I am Mike Leon. And see you all when the Georgia indictment comes through. I'm, I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see you next time. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.